Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we are going to be talking about a fairly sensitive topic for a lot of folks. We are going to be discussing eating disorders. Who gets these conditions and are there ways that they can be identified early and family members and loved ones can help? So I'm pleased to be joined on the line with Dr. Heather Goff from Kaiser Permanente. She is a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and we're going to be talking about what are the ways to address eating disorders. It's one of those conditions that, you know, there are some surprises out there that people may not realize. So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Goff. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you know, a lot of people, when they hear eating disorders, they think it just happens to one segment of the population, you know, teenage girls, and they don't think about the the actual people who are most affected by this and the spectrum of individuals who actually are at risk. So if the myth is that, you know, it just happens to a certain segment, what's the truth in that? What's the reality? It's definitely a myth, and that's one that's been around for a long time. And the reality is, is that eating disorders are, um, you know, they're very serious, but also very treatable, uh, mental and physical illnesses um, around, you know, weight and food and size, and they can affect people of all genders, all ages, all races, all ethnicities, sexual orientations, body shapes, weights, um, and the numbers are significant. Um, you know, research indicates that upwards of 20 million women and 10 million men in the U.S. will have an eating disorder at some point in their lives. Um, so I think that is a really big myth that it's, it's just teenage girls. And in reality, we, we see it across, across the spectrum of genders, ages, races. Um, there definitely are some, you know, some groups that are more susceptible or more, or more at risk, right? We often do see eating disorders in women, um, but we also see them in men. Um, LGBTQ individuals are more likely to develop eating disorders. Um, transgendered individuals are more likely to have eating disorders than cisgender individuals. But again, overall, the, the, we see this across you know, all kinds of lines um, in all genders and, and cultures and races. Um, and, and the big piece of that is comes back to you really can't tell that somebody has an eating disorder just by looking at them. Well, because part of what I think another myth is, is that all eating disorders are anorexia. And in fact, there's a spectrum of a variety of different disorders that fit in this category. Uh, let's take that one on as well. So it doesn't just happen in teenage girls. It has a, a large quantity of people that are affected, both men and women of all different orientations and ethnicities. Now, what are the most common eating disorders? And, you know, it's not all just anorexia. There are some other conditions that are very serious that often cannot be visually identified by just looking at someone. So what sort of disorders are we talking about? Exactly. So, yeah, so a lot of people are familiar with anorexia nervosa, which is um, a disorder that's primarily characterized by restrictive eating, so, you know, very severe or ex excessive dieting. Um, people may have also heard of a condition called bulimia nervosa, which is a disorder in which individuals are engaging in binge eating behaviors and then some way of undoing a binge. So the, the sort of frequent one that people think about is binging and then vomiting. Um, the most common eating disorder uh, is probably binge eating disorder, actually. Um, and that's, that's a, a, a big problem that, that a lot of people really struggle with. Um, and that's 
probably upwards of two to three or even higher percentage of people that will have binge eating disorder. And then, of course, you know, there's lots and lots of people that have symptoms that they don't necessarily fit into one particular diagnosis. Um, one of the things I talk a lot about with my patients is, you know, diagnosis can be helpful because it it helps us to know what we're talking about, and it helps us as you know medical professionals to communicate with each other. Um, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is is not so much what we call it, but how are we going to support you know this individual? How are we going to provide treatment? How are we going to come up with a plan? Um, so 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 yeah. So there really can be a very wide spectrum um, of all different kinds of of symptoms that people have, um, and and. The, and we we can't tell, you know, somebody by looking at, at them. Somebody may be, um, you know, at a normal weight or even a, a, a higher weight, you know, a larger in a larger body, and yet still have very severe eating disorder symptoms. So that's why it becomes, you know, really imperative for us to be asking those questions and 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 trying to to you know ascertain if people are struggling. Now, what would be some of the signs and symptoms. So if somebody says, oh, no, I think I might have a disorder, is there any sort of way that they could identify or self-present? Or is it something that's usually diagnosed because other people around them start to identify certain behavior patterns and get concerned? Both can happen. There certainly are individuals who start to recognize, wow, you know, the, I'm, I'm definitely having some behaviors that are, are different. Um, it, you know, eating disorders are a little bit different than some of the other things we see in psychiatry in that for some people they're not as, um, you know, the, the, the fancy term is egocentric, meaning that, that people with eating disorders don't always recognize that, that they have an issue um, or that they're sick. Um, and, and so a lot of times it is people around them, loved ones, you know, family members, friends who are starting to see changes. There are, you know, a whole host of different changes, uh, changes or kind of signs that you can see depending on the kinds of symptoms um, that people are experiencing. You know, obviously a, a big rapid change in weight could be a, an indication of an eating disorder. Although, you know, as I was just saying previously, weight is not always an indicator of, of health and of eating disorder. So that doesn't always happen. People who are becoming increasingly, you know, rigid around their eating, uh, changes in behavior around eating, getting a lot more obsessive about reading nutrition information, um, or obsessively counting calories. Um, people who are, you know, refusing to eat certain food groups, who are um, people who are getting up in the middle of a meal and, and leaving the meal to go into the other room, you know, and just a, a more unusual behaviors. Um, and then, you know, social stuff, starting to avoid social gatherings involving food, um, avoiding eating in front of people. Those are some of the some of the some of the things that, that people can see. Um, um, With some sort of, con and, some conditions, you there's a spectrum. So, you know, it might be that uh, there's somebody who decides, okay, I don't want to eat, you know, meat anymore. So they decide, okay, I'm going to go ahead and be a vegetarian. And that may be part of a process where somebody might have learned about the way that, you know, meat's prepared or learned something in school or in some other format that makes them get concerned. And then there's people who say, I'm just not going to eat anything unless it's, you know, green or something. So at, at what point would some of the differences and changes in diet be sort of um, 
a normal evolution of adolescent independence versus turning into a disorder. You know, I think sometimes a lot of people might say, sometimes I have mood swings, but that doesn't mean that you're bipolar. You may just have mood swings, right? So at what point does the characteristic symptom become become meeting the criteria for disorder? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really great question, especially because eating disorders, you know, often present most frequently initially in adolescence, right, between the ages of 10 and 20. And as you said, right, individ- you know, adolescents are also trying to figure out who they are and getting some independence. So it's not uncommon um, for, for adolescents, but also for adults, right, to, to start to um, experiment with, you know, different ways of, of eating, different ways of, you know, just in, in life in general, um, it really what we what we always look at is is function and how this is impacting your overall function, how this is impacting your overall health, um, and and that's certainly where you know if you know a professional can can be of use in, in looking at that and trying to assess that um, is this starting to impact you know uh, an individual's health? Are they having physical or medical you know? problems because of the changes in their eating behaviors? Are they having social problems or is it, you know, academic problems? The other thing I would note that is really important, and I think a lot of people don't know, you know, certainly we hear a lot about dieting and, you know, changing diets um, and people working on trying to lose weight and, you know, and that's something that's, that's all around us. But what we know is that the actual impact of dieting and restricting intake and weight loss actually can be one of the things that really perpetuates um, or even kind of leads to developing an eating disorder. Um, when we think about the things that that are risk factors for developing an eating disorder, you know, there's certainly there's biologic risk factors like your genetics, and um, but one of the biologic risk factors is a history of dieting. So we know that you know really restrictive diets can actually um, can actually lead to a more risk of you know either eating disorders or even binge eating or other disordered eating behaviors. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back after this quick break, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Heather Goff about eating disorders and can these transition to health issues over time. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and The Hub Coworking Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. Heather Goff on the line. She is a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Kaiser Permanente. And right before the break, we were talking about the risk factors for developing an eating disorder. And you mentioned something very curious, a history of dieting, a history of restricting food intake could potentially be something that would be a risk factor. And I'm curious, when we talk about some of the eating disorders, whether it be anorexia nervosa, bulimia, bulimia nervosa, or binge eating, are, are, is, is there any sort of a spectrum? Can you go from one to another? You know, you mentioned that dieting or, or having a history of significant dieting could be a risk for someone developing these other conditions. Is someone who's anorexic always anorexic, or could they turn into a bulimic, or is it sort of a really you go down one path or the other? It absolutely is a spectrum so people who do develop eating disorders often will kind of change in terms of where they fit diagnostically over time. Um, 
people who develop anorexia nervosa, for example, as a teenager, a certain percentage of those individuals will probably go on to develop bulimia nervosa. So they'll start with restricting and severe dieting. And then in a couple of years, you know, some of those individuals may start struggling more with binge eating or other types of behaviors. And that's, you know, definitely related to that physiologic change that happens, how the brain is impacted by really severe restricting behaviors, really severe dieting and malnutrition. We know that that really does have a significant impact on the brain um, and how people think. Uh, so we often see see those changing over time. I, I, I think a little bit about the, the game Whack-A-Mole. I don't know if you know that game, but but sort of, yeah, I was you know, never very kind of get, yeah. So we kind of get one symptom under control, but then it kind of pops up in another place, and so that really is very common um, that we can see that not only, you know, with people struggling with eating disorder symptoms, but then you know, there's also a lot of comorbidity. So there's also a lot of um, individuals who have eating disorders who also have anxiety or depression or substance use issues, um, and that can really further complicate things um, in terms of, of how to how people are presenting and then also how how we are trying to, to support them and treat them because those those do think those things do come along those uh, you know conditions do come along with eating disorders um, and sometimes predate the eating disorder and sometimes are related to the the physiologic impact of, of the eating disorder behaviors itself now you mentioned that there are some changes in how the brain, handles these sorts of things. So, you know, this, is it a physical change? Is it a psychological change when food becomes something that becomes a trigger for either the anxiety or the depression or the eating disorder or any, anything along that spectrum? Are there changes that physically occur in the brain? Are there things that can treat that? And, or is it more of a psychological change? And what are some of the ways, if that's the case, to really help people with this condition? So there are physical changes. There, there's actually it was some really interesting research that you might have be familiar with done long, long time ago in the 1940s. Um, it's called the Keys study or the starvation study, and and so a lot of what we know about malnutrition comes out of that research. And essentially, um, the researchers looked at what happened to a, a group of individuals when they restricted their intake. They put them on a really severe diet, and so those folks had you know, all kinds of physiologic changes, right? Their metabolism slowed way down. They got really tired. They got really cold. Their blood pressure was abnormal. Their heart rates were low. Their GI systems didn't work as well. But there were also significant cognitive um, and emotional changes. So they had difficulty concentrating, right? That makes sense. If you're not eating, it's going to be hard to focus. Your brain doesn't have the brain power. It doesn't have the energy to run on. Our brains run on glucose, so they run on sugar. And if you're not eating, it makes it really hard to focus and concentrate. Um, they had higher rates of depression and anxiety. And then a really interesting that happened, uh, interesting thing that happened in that research um, and that we see in individuals with eating disorders is that the malnutrition itself led to increasing preoccupation with weight or, and food and eating. And that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, right? I mean, if you think about, you know, a caveman living in the forest and you don't have enough food, you know, if, even if you put yourself on a diet, your brain doesn't know any better. It doesn't know that you've just decided that you want to, you know, lose however many pounds before summer vacation or, or, you know, it doesn't know that you may be struggling with an eating disorder. All it knows is it's not getting its nutritional needs met. And so it goes into survival mode. Um, so constantly thinking about where to find food and where to get food. Um, so, so, you know, the, the most important intervention is not necessarily even, you know, medication. And it's not even necessarily talking about, you know, 
how all of this started, but initially the first intervention is really helping people to normalize their eating. Um, and certainly for people who are, you know, with anorexia nervosa, for example, who are very underweight, we really focus on on trying to help people, you know, get to norm, more normalized eating and get back to a healthy weight. So that in this in this case, food really is medicine. Right? It really it really is. And a lot of many times, um, you know, the other the other symptoms like you know poor concentration or anxiety or trouble sleeping or depression. A lot of times, those will actually get better just with food alone. Right? Our, that's that's what our bodies need. We need that to to keep living and to survive. Well, I find it fascinating because you're right. There's no better example of food being medicine than looking at it from the perspective of an eating disorder where somebody may not be getting the nutrition they need. So to supply them with that nutrition, you might balance out some of these other situations going on with them. Physiologically, psychologically, brain chemistry-wise, all of it could really improve if the body has enough nutrition to be able to function. You know, I find it fascinating because we've also learned recently in the world of medicine that you know, your microbiome in your gut has a lot to do with what you do as far as eating. So, you know, the bacteria in your in your intestines help to drive some of the patterns for what people seek out in their diet. So if, if you are missing a certain nutrient, your body may crave that nutrient. And in fact, certain bacteria might increase the susceptibility of people craving things like sugar, carbohydrates, etc. And so I'm wondering if there's any studies you know of, because I certainly don't, but looking at the microbiome as an impact on some of the eating disorders that we see in people? That is a really interesting question. And I have to be honest, it's not something that I have come across. Um, You know, we know that the GI tract, though, is really impacted, right, by what we eat. And and, um, and the the GI tract is, you know, also very related to our emotional state. Um, The brain chemical serotonin, which is responsible for mood, um, we actually have more serotonin in our guts than we do in our brain. I find it fascinating, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly something to think about. You know, one of the things that we found in in conventional medicine is that antibiotics, which kill the good and the bad bacteria, alter the gut microbiome. And in doing so, that's something that sometimes the body can recover from quickly and sometimes not so quickly. So it's sort of and anybody who's, uh, who's out there wanting to do research, this might be something to look at is to consider whether or not the gut microbiome in people who have an eating disorder is different and could that be altered in a positive, productive way. So, hey, Dr. Goff, we've created a research project right here on The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. When we come back, we're going to talk some more with Dr. Goff from Kaiser Permanente about the issues on how loved ones and family members can help if they identify some someone who might be struggling with an eating disorder and may not recognize it themselves, but still need some help. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. Heather Goff on the line. She is a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Kaiser Permanente. And right before the break, we were talking about different ways in which 
the body's physiology can affect our moods and how we behave at times. So, you know, today our topic is eating disorders. And I'm curious, you know, earlier at the top of the show, you mentioned, Dr. Goff, that the treatment is really, it has to be individualized, that people's symptoms might be different or they might manifest different levels or degrees of symptoms at different times, and that it's not just a one-size-fits-all. So, if someone out there is, is their loved one happens to be experiencing the signs or symptoms of an eating disorder, what are some of the things that the loved one can do to help? Is there some way that works to sort of identify this if someone is not aware of the fact that they might be exhibiting certain signs and symptoms of concern? How can loved ones have an impact? So first and foremost, it's just learning as much as you can, right? whether it's reading books or going online. Um, this week actually is National Eating Disorders Awareness Week, which is sponsored by the National Eating Disorders Association, um, and that also known as NIDA. And that's the largest nonprofit organization, which is really dedicated to supporting individuals and families affected by eating disorders. So you know, finding information and learning as much as possible is always the first step. Um, and, you know... It, when we want to talk to someone we're concerned about, I, you know, I always encourage people, think about what you want to say ahead of time. Practice it. Find a, a time that you're able to talk to the person you're concerned about. Um, and, and, you know, be open about your concerns. Um, and when, you know, the, the, the big part is also encouraging people to seek professional help. Um, and, you know, knowing that especially uh, for an individual with an eating disorder, that person may or may not be, be ready um, to hear your concerns. So, it, so it, it, may, it may be helpful, but it's, it's kind of planting the seed, right? It's, it's kind of saying, hey, I'm, I'm concerned about you. Um, I also really think it's important for us all to be good role models right? by, by incorporating our own, you know, healthy, healthy um, lifestyle, um, healthy uh, approaches to eating and food, um, and, and trying to be a really good role model. For, are, there, are there any you know, things for, you shouldn't do? Like, is there a don't confront somebody and force <laughs> them to eat a sandwich or something? Like, you know, it, right. it might be this nuanced <laughs> approach to how you might approach somebody based on your knowledge of them and your comfort level. But what are some of the, yeah, don't do that. You know, don't say, I want to watch you eat that hot dog because that may not be the healthiest choice, but also it may not be the best effective way. So if there's not really a standard approach because it needs to be individualized, is there a list of, yeah, don't do that? Yeah. I mean, we never want to shame people or blame people or make people feel guilty. Um, and, and it's never helpful to be overly simplistic. It's not helpful just to say, well, just eat. Um, you know, just stop doing what you're doing or just eat. Um, you know, eating disorders are not, you know, these are not as, is not as simple as just a diet that somebody's gone overboard on, right? This is a really serious illness. Um, and, and so... So it's it's really important to to keep that in mind. Um, it's also really important to to continue to validate people's experiences. Um, and then you know obviously we don't want to ignore it either, right? If you have a concern, it's important to address it. It's important to let somebody know. Um, it's important to let the individual know. You know, if you're a teenager, it's important to let you know your friend, you know, your teacher or your friend's parents know. Um, and and. And, you know, the other thing is, is it's probably not real helpful to, to give advice or to tell people how to eat or how to exercise or, or you know, commenting on appearance because, because that's probably not going to be helpful either. Um, 
And so really I think it comes it comes down to just, you know, learning as much as you can and and you know, listening, um, and then really, again, encouraging people to, to seek professional help, um, whether that's, you know, talking to your primary care doctor or meeting with a therapist or a psychiatrist. Um, there's also screening tools available online. Um, so, for example, the National Eating Disorders Association um, has some some good screening, you know, has like a screening tool and people can look at that and, and say, hey, do I have some, um, you know, are my symptoms or are my behaviors, is this concerning or my loved one's concern, you know, behaviors concerning. Um, and then for family members too, also just to get, make sure that they have their own support because this can be hard not only for individuals, but also for families who, who are concerned and, and worried and um, about about the, the person with the eating disorder. Well, and you brought up a really good point, which is to take a look. This is a situation that's been around for a long time, and the National Education of Eating Disorders, uh, the National Association, may have some really good information that would sort of help people to navigate this. Because you're right. I mean, one of the things you mentioned is validate that someone has concerns or has a symptom. And like you said, don't simplify it. Don't say, well, why don't you just eat? Because I don't think it's really about the food per se. I think there's some other issues that are underlying it and the manifestation may be the food, but there are obviously some other deeper issues that require some attention and making sure that people are given the time and opportunity to really seek out the professional help that they need. Now, when you talk about what to do, so if a family member or a loved one says, I think, you know, my loved one happens to have an eating disorder, they can reach out to their PCP. They could also potentially reach out and encourage them to seek therapy, whether it be through a psychiatrist or are there other types of you know, I think about like 12-step groups that sometimes meet in communities to support one another. Are there local support groups for eating disorders? Does that even exist? Or is it something that people try and kind of keep to themselves? Um I think there is a lot of secrecy and a lot of shame around eating disorders. And so actually talking about it can be really important and really helpful. And there are support groups. Um, there are, you know, right now a lot of stuff is online. So there are a lot of online support groups, again, through the National Eating Disorders Association. There is actually a 12-step group called Eating Disorders Anonymous for people who are really committed to recovery. Um, so so a group, you know, a group sort of um, – a group-based, you know, way of getting support can also be really helpful for people to also, you know, know that they're not alone and to be able to to get some get support from other people who have had similar experiences. Um, and also, family support groups can be really helpful too for family members to be able to be in, in contact or in, in connection with other other families who are are having, you know, similar situations. Well, and I find that's where. The idea of going online with some of these, whether it be through Zoom or some other type of platform, you know, beginning in the pandemic, everybody was sort of getting used to this technology. But now there are some benefits. And I do, I do think that it allows people even to tap into national resources that they might not have access to otherwise. It really does give them that opportunity to participate in such a way that they may be able to keep their own anonymity or join a group in another location and get a lot of benefit from it without feeling as though they're revealing themselves or what else is going on in their lives. It seems ideal. Mm-hmm. I think it can be a lot less scary, right, to be behind a behind a computer, and it really does allow. It kind of just opens things up for for what's available, right? You can you can go to a, a support group that's in Hawaii or on the East Coast or in South Africa, um, and 
you know, we know that there's people all over the world who struggle with eating disorders. And so this really does give us the opportunity to, to find support all over as well. Well, and I think you've really helped to highlight some of the key issues, which are this is not just one gender. This is everybody of all different types of, of genders. And in addition, it's all different age groups. You know, this is not something that is just restricted to teenagers. This can last through someone's lifetime, truthfully. And you've really helped to to bust some of the myths that we have discussed earlier throughout the show that have really highlighted some of the education and some of the work that's being done in this area. I really thank you for some of the expertise that you've shared, if that you've shared with us. Are there any key take-home points that you want to make sure that we get to in the next 30 seconds or so? Because this is National Eating Disorders Awareness Week, and certainly I appreciate all your efforts to help educate folks. You you hit the nail on the head, which is that, you know, these are serious illness, illnesses, and you can't tell somebody has an eating disorder just by looking at them. Right? That's probably the most important one. Um, and that there is help available, that they're treatable. Um, and, and getting, you know, reaching out for help and, you know, encouraging your loved one to reach out for help, uh, you know, as, as, as soon as possible is, is going to help um, in the long run, help people to recover. Well, thank you again to Dr. Heather Goff from Kaiser Permanente for sharing your expertise with us today. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to our podcast. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. Woo!